Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm joined by the comics writer and artist John Allison. John's been responsible for some of my favourite comics of recent years, things like Steeple and Wicked Things and The Amazing Giant Days, which I kept insisting was the greatest sitcom being made in Britain today, only in comics form, um, which is a story of post-teenagers uh, finding their way in college. And John has chosen a similar sort of teen angst drama as his safe place, the TV series Dawson's Creek. I'll be right here. I love this movie. This won the Oscar, didn't it? Gandhi. Spielberg was robbed. This is before Oscar was Peter Pan syndrome. But Gandhi? I mean, why give an Oscar to a movie you can't even sit through? Thank you. Right, so you've chosen to talk about Dawson's Creek. Yes, the creek, as I like to call it. <laughs> not so you don't get it mixed up with Jonathan Creek. Oh, no, I try not to. Although it's very easy to slip between the two. So, what does Dawson's Creek mean to you? Is it what? What's the association that means it? It gives you comfort. It's a refuge, essentially. <laughs> it's a refuge in a sort of psychological sense. When I watch it, I enter a quite a peaceful and tranquil state. But also, it's almost the perfectly designed refuge. For anybody, for lots of different reasons, it has lots of safeguards built into it. Guardrails, I like to think of, in the <laughs> Dawson's Creek cinematic universe that kind of help the viewer out. You would have been older than the characters in it when you discovered it, surely? Yes, I think it started in 98, so I would have been 21 when it started. Do you think it's better for someone who's older to watch it, or some, is it teen-specific? I think it means different things to different people. If you are older than the characters, it gives you a sort of cleansing effect because i think the whole thing about dawson's creek is it's um what is it they call it trepanvit it's like when you can go back and sort of say what you should have said in the moment but you didn't yeah dawson's creek that is the show that dawson's creek is it's a lot of very eloquent kids basically saying what the writers thought they should have said in those situations when they were teenagers but couldn't because they couldn't articulate it at the time uh, so there's something about watching people kind of work through situations the way you wish you could have yeah. It's really soothing. Sleeping in the same bed was fine when we were kids, but we're 15 now. Yeah. We start high school Monday? Yeah. 
and I have breasts. <laughs> what? And you have genitalia. I gotta go. Whoa, Joe, don't hit and run. Come on, explain yourself. I just think our emerging hormones are destined to alter our relationship and I'm trying to limit the fallout. There are certainly characters in Dawson's Creek who talk nothing like any child has ever <laughs> talked. I don't think that's a bad thing. I love characters like that. If you could find a kid who talked like that, they would certainly not be a kind of pin-up. Let's put it that way. Is that what's flattering about it? If you watched it as a teen, that it was, it was like a fantasy of how articulate and dramatic and significant you wished you could be even though you probably weren't expressing yourself that way. Exactly. It's how articulate you you were in your head. You know, in your head these things work perfectly, but the kind of disconnect between the 15-year-old's brain and mouth is such that it's a pretty hard river to jump over. Are you a fan in general of teen stuff? Are you, is that because you've gone back there a lot in, in stuff that you've done? Do you like it as an era in your own life, or do you like it as a? Is it a bit like being into science fiction or something? Is it just an area you feel comfortable in? It depends. It depends entirely on the show because there are things that I like and things that I don't. And I'm sometimes like I went back in my thirties and I'd never watched Gilmore Girls, yeah. which again comes out of that saying it's slightly later WB show, and I loved it. But again, those are very eloquent teens. They never stop talking. Whereas um, things that kind of replicate the sort of inarticulate nature of teen life i enjoy less shall we say there was that vogue for incredibly raw teen stuff like kids kids and, yeah uh, happiness mm. and uh welcome to the dollhouse and things like that and i'm watching those and just going this is really horrible this is like a these are like war films yeah like even something like the ice storm it's yeah. kind of such a brutal performance of teenage <laughs> life that is too almost too real i think teenness as a fantasy plays much better for me yeah. than teenness as the reality of how horrible every day could be when you were a teenager. a bit when it was on. It used to be repeated in the mornings, didn't it? Mm -hmm. it Because it was a sort of a hangover staple. Yes, absolutely. It was on on Saturday mornings on Channel 4 and then it moved to Channel 5, I remember, towards the end of the run, which was uh, one would see as a demotion and it's sort of commensurate with it. Breaking Bad started on Channel 5. It's it's got, its it's import policy was excellent. That's true, actually. Yeah, (laughs) it was where you could go and watch The Shield and Justified, wasn't it? So yes, Channel 5 has always been a bit of an island and uh, you've got to want to visit that island. You've got to have a good reason. (laughs) But it was like a sort of soft escape, and it was certainly for British. The way the British people talked about it was that it was fantasy. It was it was it wasn't a gritty thing. It was definitely supposed to be pure escapism. Mm. People just talked about it that way. So I probably avoided it a bit because it sounded like it was too slick. Yes. But is that what appealed to you? Was the the fantasy of it was what what was not? Yeah, it was a sort of New England fantasy, which I think is again very appealing to a certain sort of. The New England fantasy of um, white clapboard houses, um, quiet streets, you can walk along tree-lined, sort of the winters are cold, the summers are always warm. It is a very approachable world. It's the same sort of world as a film like Wonder Boys or something like that, very much in the same sort of area. And I love anything like that. Once you get into that stream of American art, you go to some weird places. You might end up watching Baby Boom with Diane Keaton six or seven <laughs> times. You know, just to has get... that happened? 
Not to me personally, but it has to someone very close to me who has some, taken me on occasion to the applesauce world of uh, of Baby Boom. But yeah, it's uh, you know it's the John Irving world as well. Yeah. Of sort of the cider house rules is sort of an outlier of something like that. Hotel New Hampshire, all this. I do wonder what it looks like to Americans because it's got a value to British people as a as an absolute fantasy. Oh, it's exo- exotic. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere you wouldn't live. It's it's weirdly this is something which is holiday fiction, mm. as it's somewhere you want to hang out. It's always magic hour. Katie yes. Katie Holmes's hair is always lit in magic. Yes, hour. exactly. And it's it's and it's interesting that the the lead character is obsessed by Spielberg because it feels like oh I know this sort of small town world. Because it's the one I've seen in E.T. And yes, things. yes. It's very much the America that we were served in the 80s. It is yeah. the 80s America still being lived in and inhabited in a way that is very comfortable to us as British viewers raised on the first wave of VHS tapes. Yeah. You're going to have to drag the creek to find your body, please. Does Forrest Gump go in the comedy or drama section? How many times are you going to ask that? It goes in the drama section. Thank you, Dawson. That's the world it's selling you to the extent that watching the pilot again, it's about someone who sells VHS tapes and lives in a fantasy of a film. Video. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, that's it. That's that's how he spends his time in his bedroom with his his best friend, Joey, watching old films. Yeah. And wishing he was Steven Spielberg. If you're going to say what of this is of its time and lots of it is when it came out it wasn't a nostalgic thing now you watch it and it's got an extra layer of warmth oh absolutely lost, a lost yeah, world exactly and some of that is definitely that in 1998 it's just post Tarantino and there's this thing for young people are obsessed that they're going to become filmmakers that they're going to be discovered working in a video shop that fancy I remember that going in so deep for me that the more you had a bum job the more you were definitely going to be Quentin Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez or someone you yeah it's the year of Kevin Smith's Clerks yeah. isn't it and things like that you could absolutely look at Clerks it looked like basically dog shit yeah. on film <laughs> and you thought yeah I could make a film that was like this it's just you know just a sharp script a bit of cash a bit of black and white film stock I could be you know yeah. it was it seemed absolutely within reach you know the nerds are taking over the the world they've worked hard enough isn't it time they had their own movie clerks this job would be great if it wasn't for the customers I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me I could do without the people in the video store and the secret was that, that make you different than the schlub who wasn't going to make it was you had to know about old film yes which is a very strange thing that I, I don't know I'm, I don't have any neat theories on this but the thing that people sometimes forget about teenagers that people who are teenagers are not necessarily obsessed with their own time no they're omnivorous they're they're looking for anything that kind of confirms the sort of person that they think they are anything that chimes with your soul you will kind of bring into your <laughs> personal pantheon we, we talk about now how there are no new rock bands but that's because i think you and i have talked about this in the past that you don't need to it's all there for you <laughs> go go back into the past claim the rock bands you want out of history be it you know the incredible string band or striper it doesn't really matter <laughs> whoever whoever rings your bell you know and i think it's the same with film i think teenagers are building up this this personal library that they carry with them absolutely wait a second are you trying to tell me that turn away my sweet is the product of a genius. As much as it pains me, yeah. I don't know, Dawson. All I saw was some formula gangster movie. I mean, I'm still picking the pulp out of my teeth. Well, it was pulpy, and it was by the numbers, but underneath all the hard-boiled German drag was his great big 
thumping heart. I mean, this is this is a love story masquerading as a genre piece. Dawson, the girl hired the guy to kill her. It's very strange because I remember that being a really big deal that because the people who you were trying to copy or were held up as the great filmmakers and Tarantinas, they would be talking about Shaw Brothers kung fu movies or like uh, Kurosawa or something. So you'd read about these people and they were into something. So you'd then go and go, well, I've got to go and, and get these things. And you get that from the video shop or whatever. The really weird thing now is you look at I don't know if anyone's ever done this. You go to Netflix and type in a range menu in order of year and no film was made before 1998. They don't have old films on there. And I always thought that's really strange because I thought growing up in the video era, the Dawson era, mm. that you were meant to be consuming old black and white noir movies, which obviously happens in, in, in loads of episodes of, of Dawson's Creek. He's obsessed by these old films. And I do sort of think, oh, people have misunderstood kids are always into old stuff as well as the stuff from their own era and you've got to make sure that it's all available i suppose everything's available online on youtube and yeah but it's the canon retreats backwards into time and slowly becomes a pin that consists of about five <laughs> films you know like what's a good example of this uh, the new spider-man film no way home the big pomping stomping track at the start of it is these imbra by um talking, talking heads yeah, yeah. of fear of, is it a fear of music yeah. i think it's our fear of music and but that song's what 1979 that song's 43 years old so if a film in 1979 had started with a song that was 43 years <laughs> it would be like pennies from heaven it would be like bing crosby <laughs> yeah. something like that so you know the canon the canon of the past it, it's really you're getting tiny little blips of the past you're getting the, the, yeah. the sort of thrown into the pop culture you know the mainstream where most teenagers swim ultimately just because they're flooded with stuff so the mainstream is the easiest thing to access and you've got to be a real adventurer to dig through how much stuff you can now see if you've got like movie or whatever yeah i suppose it's all you can that. get into everything you can have a free trial you know you've not as long as you've got access to a credit card you can have 30 days of trawling through you know art house actually that be, that that back room in the vhs store is still there i suppose my, my, my nephew's mad for jodorowsky and things like that so basically what what it means is you have to buy them a bfi membership for their birthday yes, and off exactly. they go and they're happy it's all there but i think what i really enjoyed about this was that nailing of that particular time where one of the cool things you could be as a sort of nerdy leading character was you want to be a filmmaker and you're obsessed by films from 40 years earlier. I don't know. If you ask me, Tarantino does this stuff a lot better and in colour. Oh, now you're completely proving my point even more for me. Oh, yeah, if it's your thing as well, you would you might only have had access to about 15 films. 15 <laughs> films from that era, but you absolutely knew everything about every single one of them and could speak with authority. And that was probably enough to give you a good sampling of knowledge to kind of get... You were, you were a bigger expert than anyone else you knew if you knew 15 films from like 1940 to 1944 yeah, yeah. i like you like this there i ask what this is passionate opinionated irritating even <sighs> if you're going to say what's dawson's creek about the top line of it is and and what the pilot says declares what it's about is it's about a nerdy nice guy who wants to be a filmmaker and his best friend yeah absolutely you know the the casting is perfect it sets it up so well the characters are like cartoon drawings of what they're meant to be there's a good story about the casting of dawson dawson who is he's such an open-hearted dork i can't put it any other way <laughs> he's like an open wound he's so emotionally open I, I, I mean that is the kind of at the heart of the dawson's creek 
power is how emotionally open almost everybody is in that. Well, he's now known mainly for being a meme of a gif of him crying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's how this generation has taken him on to go, oh, there was that film about that guy who cries in that gif. I think it's one of the most <laughs> generous and brave performances to put yourself out there to that degree to the extent that you will A, be typecast forever. Right. I watched interviews uh, in preparation. He's not like that. His eyes don't have that wet puppy dog kind of right. he's not open to ev- like, like opened up the bulletproof vest and just letting every bullet smash him in the heart you know that it, you don't see that but the performance as Dawson is of someone who is whose rib cage is open yeah and I think that is quite something I, I had what you might call a crisis of faith crisis of faith what Jeez, you're kind of young for that, aren't you? What are you, 15? 17. 17 and already had a crisis of faith. You know, I thought we were beyond this. I thought we would move on, but I guess not. I guess whatever happened to you made you the kind of person who would tear on a 17-year-old kid whose only mistake was to equate talent with wisdom and kindness, so... Wouldn't we all like to be that open-hearted? And don't we all know that we could not be that open-hearted? It's like a it's like a roller coaster ride, you know. You get in Dawson's Creek, you literally watch someone just absorb emotional punishment for <laughs> twenty-three or twenty-four episodes per season in a way that you never could, and yet come bounce back from it. It's a it's a performance of both resilience and stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> I was really surprised watching it how much and it's got it pushes all those buttons it's from that era of uh, my so-called life and uh, the wonder years it's that it's, it's in that heritage of american uh sort of teeny drama um and the moment the music swells up it gets you it's, it's pulling all the stops out to do it but i was surprised not knowing the show very well that i cried at least three times an episode because it pushed that button and i, went, I don't oh, mind yeah. because of that openness because it's about the two words I wrote down was it's open and it is sincere. I mean, embarrassingly sincere. It's embarrassingly sincere. Yeah, it's... Um, and you're right. Like, it's the programme I've been most lacrimose over <laughs> in my life. Like, I only cry... I don't cry when something sad happens in something. I'll cry at people getting along or resolving something. I find <laughs> there's a sort of pleasure and um, pathos in two people resolving their differences and getting along that can bring tears out of me. And Actually, those are the moments that got me. It was when someone who'd been grumpy was suddenly nice to someone. Yes. And maybe it, maybe it's exactly what you need at the moment in a conflicted, uh, divided world, was watching someone curmudgeonly suddenly let someone in. Yeah, when a barrier comes down, the release is so big because... Dawson's Creek is a soap opera. It's a very, yeah. very lavishly couched soap opera. It's a soap opera with none of the um, broadcast restrictions of soap opera in terms of budget and performance that come out of making a soap opera. So all the soap opera emotions are there, but they're all indulged in a kind of money-on-the-screen way yeah. that lets them... It's You know, that's, you're right... That, I think that's why those emotions come over so big. If it was happening on Coronation Street, it wouldn't get you. But when it yeah. happens in this sort of amazing soft-soaped setting that's soundtracked to within an inch of its life with the sort of absolute apex of that kind of 90s, post-Indigo Girls kind of uh, American sort of major label alternative. Well, it was originally... I was reading that the original theme music was going to be Alanis Morissette. One hand in my pocket, Jagged, yeah. I'll tell you what, it is the most Alanis Morissette drama I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, I would, when I when I read that, I was like, oh, I tried to imagine it because the theme tune 
to Dawson's Creek, I think is absolutely key, though, to what it is. That theme tune is so indelible and so strong and sets the tone so well. Swooping up your morning light and say a little prayer for us. You know that if we are to stay alive, then see the love in every eye. I can't imagine. Like, it wasn't on there. They took it off. The theme tune, there was a licensing issue with the right. Paula Cole, I Don't Want to Wait. For years, it wasn't on the DVDs. There was a different theme tune that had been written for it. But no, if you watched it for the last nearly 20 years, you got a sort of Jan Arden song instead, you know, a sort of by the number, I think it's called Run Like Mad. wanted to run like mad but if i hear the paula cole music it's instant it's instant i know every note of that song what you're doing with a with with choosing like a comfort viewing or somewhere you feel safe the music is part of it it's admitting you into that world and oh absolutely yeah the association's completely there and you can't imagine watching an episode of friends without the rembrandts at the beginning of it because it tells you it's time to go to my place oh absolutely yeah and that's why i feel sad when they they cut title sequences down to the bone on yeah. dramas like obviously it's now a mark of a big budget drama that the opening titles will be a minute 20 long on a standard network drama or a basic hill drama, it will often be a, a four note sting, yeah. or Lost is, I think, barely a drone, you know? <laughs> but the theme music is so important for your relationship with like a comfortable, welcoming show. You know, you have to have it. If, if they, even if they cut the theme tune down by half, I feel shortchanged and yeah. angry. It's the um, the slipper bottle, the airlock yeah. that you have to go through to get to where you're going. Absolutely, like I want to, I want the theme music. I want to see the faces of the cast on the <laughs> opening titles. I want their faces to be there, and I want the names of the actors to be written on top of it, because that is how you enter their universe. It is the. I get really panicky when it doesn't happen. I get really, really annoyed when I'm really into a show, and halfway through, I have to go onto Wikipedia or IMDb and look up who everyone is, because I haven't had the name of the actor on top of their face at the beginning. They're your friends. When you go every week, they are your friends and you want to know who they are. It's part of the kind of the contract with the TV show, I think, is to kind of know the names of your friends because that's kind of your bridge to, weirdly, to other shows as well. Like, um... Busy Phillips comes into Dawson's yes. Creek near the end, and um, I'd never watched Freaks and Geeks. I don't think it, I don't know if it was ever shown in the UK. Or you had if... to buy a DVD. In fact, I'm such a nerd. I crowdfunded the DVD of. It wasn't just me; many other people did. But you had to order it from the states if you were interested in seeing the Freaks. Well, and that's Geeks. how I saw it as well. Was that a friend had um, had Freaks and Geeks DVD? But when I watched Freaks and Geeks, I was like, "Oh, it's Busy Phillips." Off, off that, it's my friend. I got into, or I was aware of Dawson's Creek as the opposite of Freaks and Geeks, because Freaks and Geeks was sold as the same production values, but for the kids who are in the background Mm. of Dawson's Creek. But Dawson's Creek is definitely the big, slick, major studio version where everyone who is the centre of attention is preternaturally gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It's from that that era of American telly. Yeah, they're sort of rating, but they're rating in an approachable way. They're some of the most charismatic people on screen, I think, in most charismatic ensembles of any show 
And they're there straight away. Again, you you recommended an episode from the later season to watch, which I watched, and I thought, well, I wonder how it got here. So I started watching it from the beginning, and I was really surprised. It's good straight away, and their dynamic is good straight away. From the first scene onwards, it's just they're lovely together. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's there's some real power, because I think... Joshua Jackson had been like Bruce Pacey had been like a child actor he's in like the Mighty right. Ducks and things like that but I think the others had come from like I think previously Michelle Williams I believe she couldn't do the pilot or was not going to audition for the part because she was in a school play and it conflicted with that's how young they are yeah 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 you know it's, you know they might have been like, perhaps 13 when they were auditioning wow. for it or something like that it's, it can't be that far off you know they really are unformed it's a it's a sort of masterpiece of casting really as much as anything else right right across the board in the show there are very few bum notes to the extent that when boyfriends come in you know like <laughs> the sort of um sort of duffs who'll come in to kind of date Jen or to date <laughs> yeah. Joey in the course of things they often they don't have the stature of the of the act so they'll often just look a little bit catalogue modelly Hi I'm Paisy Hi nice to meet you. Hi I'm uh, uh, Dawson you Dawson Dawson yeah I know um, we met before I'm Jen Oh the granddaughter from New York okay Right, right. Wow you, you look different Puberty Hi I'm Joey I live down the creek and we've never met Hi. ever And the fact that they're really young since the the theme of it almost the gag of it is that they're very confident very eloquent mm. and they're writing with they're, sorry they're, they're speaking with the voice of a 20 something writer who's had a hit horror movie yeah Kevin Williamson's come straight from Scream and I know what he did last summer to this thing and he's got this flip very very cool thing which was given in Scream to much older kids but he gives exactly the same dialogue to a bunch of 15 year olds and you go wow this isn't Gregory's Girl this isn't awkward. No, this no, is not at all. Fantastically assured. It's like it's not quite as fast as the kind of Amy Sherman Palladino sort of rocket dialogue that you get in Gilmore Girls. It's it's like so, but it's still allied to the kind of nineteen forties screwball speed of dialogue. Like yeah. those must have been long scripts because they use a lot of long words and there's a lot of dialogue. They're really dialogue heavy, which is purely enjoyable for me as a writer I mean that was what I wanted I wanted people kind of firing at each other and sometimes it's it sounded off key then sometimes you would be cringing because they were because again part of the sort of earnestness of it and their eloquence <laughs> leads to just these outpourings that sometimes you're just like oh please just stop talking you're saying too much now I had to get over myself wanting to say oh no one talks like that or even worse this is taking itself too seriously I had to get over that and the moment I got over it it became really enjoyable it's almost as if the the instant criticism you can give to it, which is it's earnest and sincere, which is a criticism you can give to being a teenager. Mm. Once you get over that lump, it opens itself up to you. And it feels like if you don't enjoy this, it's kind of your fault for not being open enough to it. Exactly. Yeah, you have to come at it. I, th- I think it's the sort of thing where if you brushed up against it, if it was on in the mornings and you just stuck the telly on and you were midway through an episode and you hadn't seen it, you, your first response would be, this is insufferable. Because <laughs> I think that was my initial response to it. You know, I was, Did it have to win you over? It did have to win me over. And, um, you know, I, I put the odd episode on, just put Channel 4 on on a Saturday morning or whenever it was on. And I'd be like, oh, no, what's going on? They're just yammering at each other. It's just these kids yammering. But then... I th- it will have been a friend said to me, oh, no, you've got to watch it. Watch it properly. Sit down and right. watch it in the right frame of mind. And then when I did, and I just sort of gave into it, because often you will, you know, like peer pressure. It's a very powerful force. Peer pressure and hangovers. Peer pressure and hangovers. Well, it was hangovers because, I, you know, I would go out on a Friday night after work. And I was in my early 20s. And I'd be a, a wreck on Saturday morning. But you'd sit there. I'd sit there in a slightly lacrimose state. 
and it was the absolute most perfect thing. It, and you don't need the hangover to watch it because I didn't go out every Friday yeah. and, and total myself. But it was always a comfortable place to go. There's something about everything about even that again at that at the time. The fashion, everything that was the fashion kind of of the time, but the sort of the boxiness of it, those boxy kind of khakis that everybody wears. <laughs> Nothing's sort of tight fitting. Everything's sort of loose fitting. The production design on that program is exquisite. It's sumptuous. Just every shelf is crammed with knickknacks, and you get more of that now that you watch on our modern huge televisions yeah. in HD. There's all posters in the background. Every, was... Everything's been worked out. All the knickknacks, everything. If you look at the, the Dawson's home, that I watched an episode with the, the Christmas party was the one I, yeah. I, I watched. I think I, showed, I gave you to watch. And every shot is filled with things that you can just sort of revel in if you've got any kind of visual sense at all. It's the most beautifully designed show. Because I, I, that's something that I really love about uh, your comics and things is that, is that, that, that it's the production design it's the clothes are right the clutter it does feel like everything is contributing towards a sense of immersion in a place that, 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 that everything is correct that's exactly the ornament they've had that's exactly the chair they'd have someone's thought about it I remember talking to a production designer about it said, someone said do you like Spielberg movies and I went yeah he said no one could live in a house that cluttered and I went why he said no, you just knock things over he said it's not real. It's theatrical set dressing to yeah. give you the sense of a child's bedroom. And I think there's a lot of that in this. I mean, the Spielberg references are all the way through it because Dawson's obsessed with Spielberg. But it's the sense of those houses are cluttered with the lives of the people who live in them. So therefore, if you look at the background, you'll learn more about the characters. Yeah, everything says something. Every object says something. It's the same in, in comics. And it's annoying when you've got to draw things because you have to draw, <laughs> especially if you like, I like domestic settings. And so the endless need to remember where everything is oh, and God. to repeatedly think. Sometimes if you, you draw the same panel three times on a page, and it's all in the same kitchen, you might have to draw the same kettle three times. And that is a trial in and of itself. <laughs> just a, not because not because drawing kettles is hard so much. It's just like, is this how I'm going to spend my life? <laughs> Worrying about this kettle. Is there not? Is there not some way to get around this? But you know, authenticity r requires you to um, render it from three different angles. But that's true. I think that's true of everything. I think when you, if you ever make anything, you realise that everything that's in anything you've ever seen has been a decision. Someone, if you, if you ever make a film and and you have a production designer or an art person, they bring you twelve kettles. You have to think about every bloody thing. Yeah. And. I think that's what you're saying is that as someone who has to do that in, in what you do, you're appreciating in Dawson's Creek they've chosen the clothes and the things really well. The longer I do this job, the more I appreciate production design. I watched House of Gucci recently yeah. and it was a long film and at times not a great film, but the production design is so intoxicating to me and to get the chance to spend my time amongst those beautiful things was such a joy. You're talking here not only about the music letting you into a world, but wanting to go to a place where you feel safe and comfortable with objects that are tactile and real. Yeah. And a situation that's real. And it all feels like you're going into a, a place. And within that place are the people you know, the characters you know, and they have familiar relationships. And then you are in a place where you are feeling safe, which I suppose is the essence of, I mean, most good storytelling, but definitely the essence of a soap. And, and sitcom, I suppose, as well, is that you want to come back every week and have everything in place and for it to feel real, solid and safe. This is another place you can live. Is that what you're after in drama? For me, personally, yes, it is. I don't like the feeling of dislocation in drama, which may 
say too much about me as a person. I think <laughs> Do you want a nest? I think I am a nest little house rat, ultimately. <laughs> I want to get under the floorboards and get cosy. And I think even in shows that I watch that are about even like police procedurals, it is the return to a central warm point that makes the difficult things in those shows bearable it's the same as you go out to work maybe you have a tough day at work and then yeah. hopefully you come home to a comfortable home you turn up the uh, primer stove and uh, a, an orange glow emerges and <laughs> and you feel uh, you know, your cockles get warmed up you know and it's the same with with any show i it, i can't get along with anything where people are too dislocated even a, a show like lost where lost in the on the one hand is about people who've been stranded on an island but there's something about the community on Lost that recognises that even in this ultimate dislocation, they have to create a sort of comfortable area. Is that where the pleasure comes from? As in you are watching people who you know what they're going to do. You know how they're going to react. I, mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot with, with setting up sitcom families and things, as, as in what you're, do, what you're building when you build your workplace or your sitcom or your precinct or whatever is that the viewers should go, oh, that's typical Joey, that's typical Dawson, that's typical whoever, that they're behaving in a way that can sometimes surprise you. And you go, oh, I wasn't expecting that of them. But all of that is a way of you saying, I know these people. I know how they are with each other. So when they behave in or out of character, there's a delightful sense of safety to it because yeah. they're your people. Yeah, it's, and it's at the heart of good writing is to allow elasticity, I think, without distorting a character so out of shape that they don't snap back. As soon as you distort a character out of shape so they don't snap back, I think you've failed because you didn't simply create the character that you needed. You broke one of the characters that you'd carefully made. You broke one of your toys. You glued <laughs> a gun on top of its head, yeah. effectively. And said, ah, oh, now, yeah, look... You know, Barbie's got a gun on top of her head. She just sprays bullets at everyone. Like, that's a that's the way a, a three-year-old looks at things. You know, yeah. they, they they don't understand the sort of integrity of the toy. Yeah, and I, I'm being told that I'm coming in on a second series of something, pitching in storylines for a second series, and it was really nice when the showrunner on that said, everyone comes in and suggests long lost brothers. Everyone comes in and brings in their new characters because they want to people the precinct with their people he went the joy is come in show you know the people we've got give us a new thing for the people the four characters we've got to do don't insist on bringing in new people so the point is you should be able to find stories out of the relationships to these four people that have been established that's good writing exactly you have to think about ways that environmentally you can challenge those characters rather than yeah like you say simply Poochie arrives and just mixes things it's up. It's Poochieism, isn't it? You yeah. don't want to Poochie. You can't Poochie. You can't Poochie a show. No, <laughs> it's a, a constant danger. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's how Dawson's Creek works. You know, like the problems are resolved by the central cast. They yeah. resolve things amongst themselves. They draw on the resources and the energy that's within the show. The things that agitate and break the show and, and cause problems are people from outside the show. You're right. That's exactly... I mean, you were saying this about a crime drama, where a crime drama is effectively... You think it's about policemen solving crimes. What it is is there's a little precinct which represents the normal town, which is the, 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 the police station or the family that's there. And they have to deal with the fact that there are murderers out there who are the people you don't like, who ruin it for them. Yeah, they spoil the fun. You know, if it was just like, obviously, we now have the ultimate distillation of that kind of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where yeah. it's almost all squad room and the crimes <laughs> are, although the crimes seem to be almost as bad as the crimes in like the shows that it, it kind of is a truncated version of. Ultimately, it is the warmth of the squad room Uber yeah. Alice. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's, it's a way of looking at, at, at the soapy heart of good long-running drama you want to get back to the TARDIS and have four people in there who are safe and every week there's a monster that wants to destroy them and you're delighted when the monster's gone yeah because we can get back to we can get back to having a nice time now like that (laughs) when I'm writing I'm always trying to balance out and read it was something that readers liked in my work that they weren't getting from many other comics which was like the hangout zone yeah you know, like people people will often go like they'll say john oh i wish you'd write a comic you know why don't you write a superhero comic it'll just be like but it'll just be the superheroes hanging out and i'm like <laughs> i wrote a comic that was literally all hanging out all the time it, you know if, if the superheroes are hanging out that isn't that isn't really something that appeals to me i i, I like the warmth of it but i don't want to write you know, Captain America and and you yeah. know, the Avengers just hanging out. It's like that isn't what's good about those characters. Yes, you're 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 wrecking the thing that makes them. Interesting. Yeah, they they these are action people. <laughs> but the hanging out element, putting that hanging out element back in it. I don't know what we were talking about. Dawson's Creek. I ended up talking about superheroes because I suppose it's what's interesting is that the same values that drive a, a, a really really high end good soap opera with a really well drawn cast drive anything good where there's a a, 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 a team in there. That feeling of, of just wanting to see them interact somewhere safe, that not being a disappointing thing, that not being undramatic, that not being a weak option, but that being a strong option. But there's loads of jeopardy in Dawson's Creek. The teen setting, and one of the reasons that I think teen dramas work so well is that the stakes are so high. The stakes of small things are so high because your yeah. social capital is so small and any damage to your armour is so vast and... You're you're observed by such a huge peer group in the school, especially, that you're always at risk. I think I need to apologize. Well, I think I blew it tonight. And it's just, um, this is kind of a whole new world for me. And I, um, I don't really know what to do or what to say. And I know that I don't fit in very well. Joey. You didn't blow anything. So the stakes are enormously high. You couldn't... Dawson's Creek doesn't work, you know, what would be the equivalent of Dawson's Creek with, like, older people? Last Tango in Halifax? I suppose what what you've got is a complete lack of understanding that this will pass, that this isn't very important. Because I think I noticed that, that Joey keeps saying to Dawson, you don't know how lucky you are. You've got the luckiest, loveliest life. And he's going, oh, but so much drama. And you go, yeah. I mean, and she keeps saying it's because you want to make films, you understand drama. Go, no, it's not. It's because you're a teenager. And the great thing about teen 
stories, I suppose, is that the stakes are simultaneously incredibly low, so you don't feel too stressed watching them. Yeah. But also, to the characters, the highest stakes there have ever been. Will she hold my hand in the cinema is the biggest question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, if you go back to the start of Dawson's Creek, because Kevin Williamson of Scream is only at the helm for the first two series. Oh, right. And the first two series are, I think they're hornier. They're definitely hornier. There's, there's a, I mean, like, <laughs> Pacey effectively has a, an affair with a 35-year-old woman in the, by the third episode. Um, do you think I could help you locate a video this afternoon? Maybe. I'm in the mood for romance. Uh, we keep the new releases, I guess. Oh, no, I'm vintage all the way. Uh, the classics are in the... Where would I find The Graduate? This is a storyline which I do not think would swim today. He's 15 or something, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's no question that this woman wouldn't like, hit on a 15-year-old. I, I rewatched these episodes today because I wanted to be absolutely sure of what I was <laughs> saying about them. She's got to be in her 30s. It's like she's t- more than twice his age. Yeah. She's not like 21 even. She's she's a mature woman. And, and Pacey's like, oh, this could really... You know, I just fa- I fancy giving this a go, you know. Like, me, <laughs> you and me, let's retire to a secluded zone. And she's like, oh, I don't know. And then, and then it happens. And you're like, what? I just don't know where to put this now because... Yeah, I mean, you, wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't do it and it would be questioned more. But it's, yes, you're right. When it opens up, it's definitely got... That, that was noticeable, the difference in tone between the one that you showed me, the Christmas party episode, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is season four. four yeah. Which I thought was absolutely lovely. And then going back to episode one, which was far more... You're right, horny. It's raw. Teen comedy. I think it's much raw earlier on. And they talk about sex all the time. I think got it in trouble because it was basically. Yes. It's a very slick show, but for American television, the frankness about sex. That I think it was meant to have like a tie up with Procter and Gamble, a classic soap opera. Oh, right. um, and Procter and Gamble, after like they'd seen the first three episodes which had been made, were like, no, we're out. So, Jen, you a size queen? Excuse me? Well, how important is the size to you? Joey. Well, you know, being a virgin, I guess I haven't really given it much. So how about yourself, Joe? I'm torn. You and me outside now. What do you think, Dawson? I'm going to kill you. There's also there's a thing in this I noticed as well, which I don't think is even down to the cast or even the real ages of anybody. Because, funnily enough, when you look at things that have been made a few years ago, it gets harder to tell how old people Mm. are. So when I started watching it, because everyone's wearing slightly older fashions, the kind of fashions that I might still wear, because I'm Gen X, so I'm watching going, what, are they 30? Oh, no, they're 15. And the grown-ups are 100 years old and the kids are indistinguishable young yes, people. Grams appears to be 100 years old. Yeah, if you see Mary Beth Peel, who plays yeah. her now, looks exactly the same. And she's, she's about, I looked her up, she's about 57 when it starts. So basically yeah. she's playing the old grandma who's very Christian and doesn't approve of them. And they've dragged her hair back, they've got her in sort of twin sets. But it doesn't appear to be a, a, an age clash with people who are a little bit old. The people who are older are there's someone running the town who disapproves yes. of this shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, you've got the villains in it, are, the adult villains in it are very clearly drawn. Pacey's dad. Grams yeah. is a villain at the start. Yeah. She's very much against Jen, and it takes her probably five seasons when I think she moves to Boston. When they all go off to college, Grams comes too and has, like, <laughs> a little flat there. There's no, like, clash, like you say, between, like, slightly older adults. It's authority figures yes authority figures it's like a bad parent like Jen's bad parents and Grams is a hard old stick yeah and Pacey's dad is a drunk and a sheriff you know he's all the bad things wrapped up in one (laughs) they're very 
obvious things to push against. They work really well because they're sort of slightly cartoon villains who are softened as time goes on. I mean, Pacey's dad less so, but... But then it allows them to be set... that Their frankness, the, the kids' frankness about sex and horniness and, and things like that is set against this. And it does feel like it's... I mean, like most teen stuff, as soon as it's more than five years old, you look at this and go, this could be Rebel Without a Cause or something. It's got a real feeling of going, oh, even though when, I, when this, this came out, it felt very now and very new, you go, this is the same as every teen drama. It's got an essential thing, which is this generation, the, the generation above don't understand. Yeah, yeah exactly. These, Their drama these belongs are, to them. These are the new mores. They are attached to this particular group. And yeah, this, these are very much the things that, vex them and yeah and their frankness about it i mean there's a there's a good wank joke in the in the pilot it always always finishes the episode it's a nice way where dawson tells joey how often he wanks and when joey usually in the morning with katie kirk i'll stand by with an echo that is it deliberate that he he wanks over a newsreader (laughs) he says i get up in the morning and i wank to katie kirk that's the joke. Anyway, your mum's a newsreader. This is really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the echo's meant to be there. Whether I'm meant to get that echo? I mean, it's good. I mean, it's a good gag. I think, yeah, I think the the, <laughs> the, um, the opening of Dawson's Creek also, I think, mimics the way that now, like, the first in, in the first episode of an HBO show, or really any sort of premium drama, any drama where you can show rude stuff, yeah. Well, the first episode will always feature some masturbation or some quite vigorous sex or some yeah. nudity that maybe won't happen again during the whole of the series. And it's this, like coughing up a hairball. We've got to get this out, we've got to get rid of it, and then we can move on. Yeah, Dawson's Creek is very much tumbles onto the air the same way that NYPD Blue did. It's very much a <laughs> post-NYPD Blue, even though it's not for the same age group. Yeah. But NYPD Blue really traded off the slightly rawer stuff that was in it that was American TV had never seen before. And Dawson's Creek is the same but for teen dramas it's like yeah here we go this it's the 90s get used to it so uh jen you a virgin that's mature well because dawson is a virgin and two virgins really makes for a clumsy first encounter don't you think you were gonna die i just thought i'd help you know cut to the chase no it's, it's okay dawson yes i am a virgin and how about you joey oh, are you a virgin please years ago trucker named bubba I don't like the term binge watch because I'm not sure a binge is a good thing. I don't think you should have too much of anything. It's quite bad for you. But the um, the way we watched these shows in the UK was different to how the Americans watched them. Right. The Americans would get four episodes, then you might get a break for football or a oh, mid-season right. break, whereas they would be held back in the UK until the entire run was complete and then they would be shown, you know, they would be licensed and then the, the networks would hold them back because there was no chance of people watching it early because there was no internet capable of delivering yeah. you know the video files and no hooky internet <laughs> of that nature to get them from so if you were going to watch dawson's creek which was 24 weeks on you would get it every week for 24 weeks the americans didn't get it every week for 24 weeks whereas we got this very comforting show every week you could go to that place every week at the same time and it would never let you down it would never not be there it would never not be there because the season the whole series was in the can and it was long and this worked for all the american shows it was the great power of them when channel 4 would import them was that you got them every week er would run for 26 weeks and yeah. for 26 weeks i remember i would think oh the, the season would start i think oh this is great half the year i know wednesday night at nine o'clock I'm going to be able to go to hospital. (laughs) Dawson's Creek, it's the digressions within a season of that length 
that lend the kind of patina to it that make it into a comforting view because you can't do 22 episodes of the big bad you just can't you, yeah. because it's exhausting and also you'll the story will have sort of collapsed halfway through whereas so you end up with really odd detours in these shows in these 24 22 to 24 episode long seasons and Dawson's Creek really benefits from that because it's a hangout show you get hangout detours you get even more granular so all of that, that. Is, is is giving you more and more depth of relationship and more affection for the people because yes. it's, it's, it's not a story you are being told it's a place you visit yeah that's right exactly you go to that place and what's happening that week you know you get good episodes and you get bad episodes you get episodes you come away and you go that wasn't one of the best ones but sometimes those episodes but it's with those people but it's with those people you just got to spend time with them that's that's what's sort of what's comforting about it there's a natural end to Dawson's Creek because their kids they're going to go to university. It's yeah. not still going to be running when their, you know, when their education is over. Like there's a natural close yeah. to it. You know, you you can't keep going forever. Or certainly at the time, you wouldn't have thought about doing that. There's a natural and the nat and that's something that when I was working on Giant Days, I knew that the beats were there of the years of university yeah. for the story. So I could, I knew this will go to here, this will go to here, and when they get to the end, when they throw their university caps in the air. That's kind of it, you know. Yeah. And John Day's the final issue I did is kind of my tribute to the final episode of Dawson's <laughs> Creek, which is set like six years after. I, oh, maybe it's three. I can't remember. Maybe it's, it's set in 2008 and the final episodes are sort of in 2003. So it's maybe five years yeah. after. And I didn't go quite that far, but it was like, yeah, you want to show them down the road just because people kind of want that little bit of closure? extra grease and closure. Yeah, but... You don't want to tell the whole story further down the road because the story of people's adult lives isn't the same as the story of their teenage lives. The stakes are so different. I was excited that the, the episode you recommended to watch, the, the season four one, the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, is about them making decisions about where they're going to go to college. And you can feel the end of the show in those decisions because yes. you go, we're not going to be here forever. One of my favourite things i love ghost world the comic and the, mm -hmm. the film because it's about saying you've had these friends all this time these are your best friends but at some point you can't stay together because at some point you have to go out yeah and there's another world beyond this even if dawson and, and joe being friends since they were seven but you know they're going to be friends forever but they won't be together together yeah the first episode she explains we can't do sleepovers together anymore yeah things are changing and it's a show about puberty and growing up so the, what's coming down the line at them is a point at which they're no longer in the creek. Mm. They've got to go out and find the wider world. And that episode, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, says, which college are you going to go to? How are you applying? What that, those decisions say about you? And I think that's a thing I'd forgotten, What how incredibly high stakes and pressured that period of your mm. life was. They're about to be forced into a completely different world, and it's how they respond to that. Like, I, I love that episode. So where did I apply? Uh, you apply to Bard, Brown, Columbia, Emerson, and Sarah Lawrence. Oh, and, and BU. Nice. Mm. You know, I had to ransack your computer. A little pruning that, um, that paper you did on women's suffrage movement made a really good essay. Really? Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I stumbled across your journal. <clears throat> oh. I didn't realize you still had those kind of dreams about me. 
more nog? Sure. Love some more nog. That episode, I think, is like a sort of flipping into like the next, you know, the next yeah. stage. It kind of points the way to the next stage, and it's almost like that episode is like them taking their exam for the next <laughs> stage of Dawson's Creek. Who will you be? Who will you be? Exactly. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it's it also it's a Christmas episode. It's got a Christmas party in it. It kind of emphasizes all the things I like. The coziest, like coat. Like winter in New England is, I love it. I used to go over to like Connecticut in January because right. the flights were cheap. I would go over and stay with friends and just enjoy like New England in winter. It was great. Wow. Yeah, I loved it. And but that was after that was post Creek. Oh. Uh, these these are all things that had been awoken within me by uh, Did Dawson. Draw you in. Dawson very much drew me in to the New New England uh, winter. Yeah, definitely. Does your love of this and what it taught you affect the decisions about what you did with your comics because what's interesting about your comics is that the the domesticity the coziness the precinct is so important in lots of the stuff you do and is it just because this is the kind of story you like yes I mean, it's as simple as that. Yes, that's I the love... worst interview question I've ever asked because the answer is just yes. yes isn't but it? no, but I can allow <laughs> allow me to expand. Good. Um, yes, I love domesticity. I love the feeling of um, dealing with people's day to day lives and exploring the drama within data because it's the most relatable drama there is because we are all bumbling from one situation to the next and if you can pick and what do we enjoy more than when someone comes home at the end of the day with a fresh anecdote oh, yeah. something something happened today flipping egg tucker it was quite something <laughs> and they take apart the day and and a little wrinkle their their personal experience has been applied to a situation they would not have expected to find themselves in and what there's no greater pleasure than that you know, so someone came into the office today. They came with like a big jar of sauerkraut. Anyway, they popped open and it stank. It filled the whole building with stuff. We were all out in the car park. That's the sort of thing I live for. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I like, I like, I like small things. I like small things. I like the exploration of small things. And in, when I take my work beyond that, when I'm forced to get big, because sometimes you think you can get, I can get out in the world and get big. Mm. Whenever I do that, I feel deeply uncomfortable. And it's, you've got to make yourself uncomfortable sometimes. But yeah. as soon as I can get back home to the safe zone, I feel like I'm on really solid ground. You know, it's like I've got all my toys around me again. It's great. One character we haven't mentioned who is brilliant, which is which is which is Michelle Williams as Jen, who's just who's the outsider who comes in. So you've got a setup at the beginning where everyone in Dawson's Creek knows each other, and then you fly in someone who sort of you might have used as the the audience's way in. Mm-hmm. But she arrives as the outsider, and she's the unknown, and uh, their reaction to her arriving and how she behaves tells you about them. Um, and I mainly just want to say, what a brilliant performance! Yeah, she comes in. And she comes in as this very glossy kind of Tony New York young woman. And the way she's introduced is literally from a distance, lit from behind in it, and a hot dress, and all the boys are going hubba hubba like a yeah, text well, over the that's not the show it becomes, but the way they introduce it is a classic teen. Yeah. She's the hot blonde. She turns up. But that's the thing. That's the dichotomy of Dawson's Creek. Jen is Marilyn, 
and um, <laughs> Katie Holmes, Joey, is Jackie, Jackie Kennedy. And those are your choices. And those are your choices. The archetypal New England choice uh, for the New England male is between Marilyn Monroe and Dawson ja- is, is, and is John Kennedy. It's John Kennedy, yeah, exactly. And so this is the American ideal played out on screen. Yeah, she's a fast New York woman. And as a result, <laughs> she's, trouble. she's trouble and must be ostracised at every point. You know, she's a lust object. And then she, be- and then you know, their episode, you know, yeah, she's taken some ecstasy, and Grams is very angry with her, and and she's like a sort of cool person. You think, oh, if that was someone that was at school or in your office, you'd want to be friends with them because they were sort of, you know, like a sort of soothing presence, if you like. Jen is soothing, even though the drama swirls around her constantly. Yeah, the whole thing about this being sort of low stakes but high stakes is that they don't make her a big EastEnders soap bad girl. She's very likable and you want to hang out with her. And I think that's what makes this comforting and relaxing is that the even when someone's brought in to play that role, they play it quite Low down key, yeah. and open. And a friend of mine said this about as a, a, as a theory of how you do storytelling, that very often storytelling is taught in a linear way, that what you do is in ev- events or a circle. or a, So that's one sort of story, which is... Uh, uh, it starts and you make the journey into an unknown place and you bring back a boon, all that sort of Joseph Campbell, yeah. Heroes Myth. So that's one way of telling a story. The other way of telling a story, which lots of things are, which is just a pile of reasons that these people are nice to hang out with. And even great William Goldman, like Butch and Sundance, I don't really care where they go. I just like hanging out with these guys. Every scene is another reason why these are nice guys to hang out with. And the lovely thing about an open-ended, long-form drama like this is it doesn't suit horizontal storytelling. This suits vertical storytelling, which is a series of piled-up reasons why I want to hang out with these guys. Yeah, exactly. Every situation is another reason. It deepens your friendship with the character. Yeah. It's it's about friends, but it's about you making friends with the characters. And this is from an era when the show Friends is on. Yeah, it's a it speaks to a it speaks to quite a comfortable time. I remember hearing, I think it was Van Dyke Parks yeah. talking about the presidential sleepwalk of the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> but I sometimes think about the years between nineteen ninety six, sort of war in Yugoslavia aside, yeah. the sort of late Clinton era as being a kind of presidential sleepwalk. This kind of. <laughs> low stakes low key time in america where things were kind of bumbling along pretty okay yeah. and entertainment reflects a certain sort of peace with america's soul that didn't last from you know past september the 11th and you know, maybe if you just admit that you love movies the geek will resurface and you'll be able to connect with that part of you that won't tolerate cynicism under any circumstances and people will respond to that they will respond to that great big thumping heart of yours trust me the other thing I wanted to talk about was was authentically speaking for youth. There's a real demand for authenticity now. That as an author, you must be the person you're speaking for. And what I love about this is it's got that in common with John Hughes or Bill Forsyth or something, where there's no attempt made to write in exactly the argot of those times. No. It doesn't feel dated or that someone's trying to do a, hey, young kids, kind of writing. It's written in the voice of a 20-something film nerd who's made it the pressure on yourself you, you all you must do is write plainly if you write plainly you'll be forgiven almost everything <laughs> i i remember reading that jacqueline wilson wouldn't write about teenagers anymore she says i'm only obviously jacqueline wilson the, the children's author yeah 
she came to a point, perhaps I might have been five, ten years ago, she said, I'm not going to write about teenagers anymore. I just don't know enough about them to represent right. them. I'm going to write historical fiction now. And it's historical fiction about teenagers, as I understand <laughs> it. But she didn't feel confident enough to write in their voice anymore. She That's understandable, because real... they, they seem strange. They seem strange, exactly. Whereas I think when you're in... I think. Um, Kevin Williamson was perhaps in his early 30s when Dawson's Creek got on the air. Yeah. I think he conceived of it kind of in his in his late 20s. And so you're still close enough to ground zero to feel that you're not betraying something as long as you write it pretty straight down the line. Obviously, he they're the most eloquent teenagers who've yeah. ever existed. But I think the sort of people who enjoyed Dawson's Creek, the sort of teenager who enjoyed Dawson's Creek, would enjoy going for the thesaurus. There's yeah. an, in, I think in... On the very early episodes, Dawson uses the word apotheosis. Apotheosis. I can't, even I can't say this apotheosis. Word. Apotheosis. And ha- I don't think the average fourteen-year-old watching <laughs> was was particularly in touch with with what that word means. I'm not particularly in touch with what that word means now <laughs> at this stage. So this, these sort of words were in there. But you like that if you're the kind of kid or young adult who enjoys wordy teens, you're going to enjoy learning a new word. You're a real yeah. Susie Dent dictionary corner kind of person. Also, it's in character. He's the kind of person who would say that, even if you don't know what that word mm. means. Him saying a word you don't know what it means, that's very him. It, what, it, what it doesn't feel like, and I get the same feeling when, when you're writing younger characters, like college-age characters, it doesn't feel like someone's constrained or worried. It feels like they're just writing how those characters are feeling. Yeah, exactly. And again, it is a lesson that I learned from these shows. To it, not care. To not care. Just to just lay it all out there. Just throw... As long as the feeling is true, you can get away a lot with the words as long as you're playing with them. If you try and write... Like, sometimes I will find the most aggressive piece of slang and I will put it in there because I think it's funny yeah. to use it. But I sometimes regret it when I look back five years later... One, I, what, does it date badly? I don't know if it does. I just look at it and go, "Did I betray myself here? Right. Did I betray? Did I betray my approach here? If I put the words pen creps in there?" <laughs> Although I do like to heavily annotate when I use this slang. So, do you put a little box in asterisk? Asterisk. Fark note. Yeah, exactly. Pen creps means a fresh penguin biscuit straight from the tin. It, it doesn't. That's not what it means. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I do. I'm never too sure. But I know that if you write straight, people don't talk in slang all the time. They talk with their friends, perhaps in that way. But when when you're reading, I don't think you want something that's re- in a really heavy sort of argot. I don't think you want that. I think does it have to be a nadsat. No, exactly. And it wouldn't. It doesn't serve the reader or the the consumer of whatever you're doing to do that. It's better to give it to them straight. Also because it opens the door to more people. It's about transparency, I suppose. Yeah. It's about saying that the authentic feelings of these people is one of the things that I think I love about teen drama as a thing is that we've all been that age. So we've all been through a version of this, even if it's not the same. And I think the emotions, regardless of the trappings, the technology and everything else, are broadly similar. So you can always push that button. I'm watching... Is it eighth grade, the Bo Burnham thing? And the most stressful thing I've ever watched in my entire life. The opposite of a comfort viewing, but because it completely tapped into how frightened I was at that age. And you oh, they're still frightened the same way as we're frightened. They're still in love the same way as I was in love. You forget that no matter what the trappings are, the emotions are the same. And we've all been through them. And there's a power in that in just saying, okay, unadornedly expressing, using simple words, how this feels. Yeah, I mean... 
eighth grade is a film that's talked about as a horror. It's a horror without it's, monsters. It's just one of the most frightening films I've ever seen. Exactly. <laughs> and But you can, you know, the emotions are the most terrifying thing to a teenager unless they're in a particularly extreme situation in life. What you deal with with your hormones and your heart and your mind it is enough to stop you sleeping. It's enough to make you frightened to go out the front door in the morning. There is no more visceral feeling than the terror of having asked to go out and then, you know, you were laughed at by her mates and everyone's going to know about it. You know, that, to you at the time, that's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you a lot more than, you know, Frankenstein's monster <laughs> is going to destroy you. Like, that's not real. Those yeah. emotions are real. The humiliation, humiliation, especially at school, I think is one of the most terrifying things that exists. And yet, with something like Dawson's Creek, you're finding a comfort in revisiting or or seeing those emotions depicted. Exactly. But again, because they handle it better. It's a it's a yeah. roadmap. There's a even when they make mistakes, it's a roadmap for teens. You see them go into these situations. They you see them handle it just about as gracefully as any human being could handle it in most cases. Or if they don't handle it well the first week, by the third week of the storyline, such as the nature of drama, they will have resolved it. You know, be it grief or what whatever else, whatever they've got into, they will have extricated themselves from it, and that is something to watch and then you can be comforted because it's a kind of you can sort of add it to your teen arsenal if you like there's a lovely feeling of that in this that that the people who are making it because it's slightly autobiographical as well um that it's it's made of familiar bits yeah it is autobiographical isn't it like he, he's what well, it's the great sausage machine of your experiences you know he parcels out little he puts sort of parcels out like his his kind of gay experiences into Jack yeah. and he parcels out his love of film in, and Spielberg into Dawson and it's exactly that And but I, I sometimes struggle to square away Scream with Dawson's Creek because I I don't like seeing people getting cut up So, but I have mm. watched Scream and I, I wonder if it's just it was simply another way into the kind of teen lifestyle it's just another way of looking at it you know it's another teen genre and it was like he had a few of them all lined up he's like well I can because <laughs> he'd had he'd had he'd had Dawson's Creek on on the slate since about 1995, which is probably about the same time as Scream. He probably had like all these cars on the grid ready to go, and it's just which one raced off first, really, to explore his teen universe. Because most of the things that he explored thereafter, as well, are kind of in the same yeah. milieu. So in a funny sort of way, this is this is oddly the perfect thing because it's sort of about nothing. What what's the pitch? Oh, it's just honestly what I wish it was like growing up. The hardest pitch there is. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to just do what people do in their lives, but a slightly heightened version of it. I, it's the hard... That'll be 10% more beautiful. 10% more beautiful. It'll always be sunset. Always, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a lot, of, a lot of teachable moments. What I was interested in with this was its complete lack of irony from the era when everything was ironic. It doesn't have a layer of irony and it. it's not an arch comment on this. Everyone is who they are. Every, it's very direct. Yeah, they're, they're unguarded. Everybody's always like probably 100% more unguarded than they would be in real life. People, their hearts are always worn on their sleeves. Like Pacey doesn't fancy the teacher. He literally tries to seduce the teacher. Yeah. Um, it's, big, it's the big strokes of it. And yeah. yeah. I think this would be impossible to make in Britain. The layer of... Of, of irony you'd have to put over it, the questions you'd ask. 
I think it's uniquely Americanly honest. It very much. It always feels to me also a little bit like it's a sort of post-therapy teen drama. <laughs> Everyone speaks freely. It's like everyone's sitting in a circle and they have to sort of speak their minds, you know, about what's on their mind. You know, Dawson always says exactly how he's feeling. Is there a point to what we're doing? Who cares? It's tradition. And you don't monkey with tradition. <laughs> but it is. It's very much a kind of let's talk about how we feel which again in britain we're not we're perhaps better than we were at talking about how we feel but i can't imagine you know we can talk about shows like skins and things Mm. like that but they're not the same no it had a very different feeling than i was trying to think of british teen stuff that would do this and i think all of it would be done with a layer of irony or a layer of just embarrassment you'd be embarrassed about being this honest what felt thrilling about it was its alien bigness. Yeah. It's, it's, it's big-heartedness and it's big... It's honesty. It felt bracing. It was bracing to hear people talk that way. It made it made me think, yeah, if I could be this emotionally honest, <laughs> I would be a better person, you know? If I, could, if I could confront problems by talking about them rather than simply forcing them down into the pit of my stomach <laughs> and holding them there for five to ten years, <laughs> I think I might well be, be a better person. Is it a, was it a rat- course of treatment for hungover Britain to be forced to watch this and then learn. I think it helped me. I'm, I'm very impressionable. <laughs> but I think it helped me a little bit. It helped me talk. When I had to talk to people seriously, I thought, no, be frank. Be honest yeah. about what you feel. When there's a problem, try and talk about it rather than simply, you know, glossing over it. And, and my God, I'm not perfect at it. But it did change me a little bit, I think. You love this girl, Dawson. Well, that, oddly enough, has not kept her from breaking my heart time and time again. Like I say, I was there. I was in a, a damaged state on the sofa. And there was, you know, I was. my heart was as open as Dawson's at that point. <laughs> I was letting these feelings in. You okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, uh, just, just thinking. About? About what you said to me the other night. What did happen to me? Thank you very much for bringing in Dawson's Creek. My pleasure. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribe.